This episode of the Morning Skate is brought to you by Laga Sports. Laga Sports specializes in making 100% custom, fully sublimated uniforms and apparel for a variety of sports, but they're known for the premium quality and creativity of hockey jerseys. They have a one-price, any-design policy. It doesn't matter if you're looking for a simple NHL style or if you're wanting to create jerseys that look like Rebel Fighters from Star Wars. The price will always be the same, and the design of possibilities are endless. Check them out at lagasports.com. That is lagasports.com. L-A-G-A-S-P-O-R-T-S dot com. Own your look, own the game. You'll lose 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hey guys, it's Ked here. Uh, on this episode of Morning Skate, I sit down and I interview Bill Clement. We kind of go over his whole career, uh, two-time Stanley Cup champion, voice of hockey in in the 90s, 2000s. Uh, so yeah, that's what we're going to do this this podcast. Next podcast, we're going to get back to our normal NHL in the news type stuff. We're going to end up doing that tomorrow. So this one's just the Bill Clement podcast. Uh, before we get into it, be sure to check out our store. Uh, if you go to morning-skate.com and you click store, you go there. If you use promo code TMS social, you save 25% off. Uh, a lot of people have been buying. I appreciate it. Keep taking pictures, sending them in. We're, we're trying to, you know, take it over a little bit. So, all right, let's hop right into it. Uh, Bill Clement, let's go. Okay, guys, now we are joined by an absolute legend. Uh, you're going to recognize his voice and immediately think fucking awesome-ass hockey. Uh, Bill Clement is here. He's joining the morning skate. We're going to talk about his career, some moments, some memories. Bill, thanks for hopping on with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Glad to be aboard, James. Awesome. So, how about this? How about we just rewind it? We're gonna we're gonna press that rewind button. And we're gonna go all the way back. And I'm gonna ask you, how did you get into hockey? Like, what? I know, I know that you grew up way up north. Uh, so I probably runs in, in the people's blood up there. But I mean, what what happened? How how did you get into it? Uh, I was always athletic yeah. and wanted to play like every sport that was available. And I lived in a town in Canada called Thurso, Quebec. It was just a little paper mill town, about 2,800 people. So, uh, and, and I went to a tiny little English school that the year I started going to school expanded from three rooms to five rooms. And th- there just weren't many sports that were offered. Hockey was always available because water freezes sub 32 degrees. <laughs> and there was always an outdoor rink uh, or even the backyard where my dad would, you know, take the hose and hope that it wasn't frozen and create a rink for my brother and me in the backyard. But I just grew up wanting to play every sport that there was. And the one that was most readily available was hockey mm-hmm. and television has a great influence right on, yeah. on everybody. It was other than the Canadian football league, which I completely loved um, hockey night in Canada uh, on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights, man, that was that was it. Like, yeah. don't you know? Don't tell me I got something else going on in my life, even when I'm eight <laughs> years old, because I got to watch hockey in Canada. Yeah. So hockey was natural. It's it's so natural for every Canadian. And by the way, do you know what Canada's national sport is? No. Uh, wait, is it lacrosse? 
Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, that's a trick question. Everybody says hockey, yeah. right? It's lacrosse. So, I, and then there was no lacrosse being played where I lived. <laughs> all right, so you hopped on the couple ponds, started playing hockey. Uh, yeah, I read. So I did all my research on Wikipedia, which I mean, one one way is like, okay, there's a lot of information here, but the other side of it is like somebody could be completely making this stuff up. But right. from what I saw, it says that you grew up playing with Guy Lafleur. Is that is that an actual thing? Well, I grew up two blocks from Guy Lafleur, okay. and when I started playing, I mean, I didn't start playing real organized hockey till I was twelve years old. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was fifteen, I had left home to try out for a Chicago Blackhawk junior team in in the Quebec League, and I made the team. I uh, ended up being the youngest player in the Quebec League, but the English kids were not invited to try out for the town team. So I, Guy Lafleur is six months younger than I am, and he's one hockey year younger than I am. Uh-huh. So his first year of, of uh, his last year of Pee Wee was my first year of Bantam. Uh, he always played up a year. So I played three years with Guy, but I used to go and watch him play at the little arena in Thurso. Uh, the train would the, the freight trains would rumble by the arena, and there were big cracks in the in the boards. You know, there was no insulation in the arena, so if it was you know, 10 below outside, it was 10 below inside. Yeah. And I remember the whole arena would shake when the big freight trains would rumble by about, I don't know, 30, 40 yards from the rink. I used to go and watch Guy. I was so amazed by Guy Lafleur. He was, he was like the a, a, a Gretzky of his era, the Lemieux of his era, the Connor McDavid, the most dominant player. And when I finally got invited to try out for the town team, uh, there were all all of the people in the town, the French people that had no idea who I was. They saw me play and they went, "Holy shit! We could have won the Quebec Pee Wee tournament last year." Thurso in a Class C, won Class C, B, A, Double A, and lost out to Mississauga, well, you know, huge part of Toronto. So they lost out to a like a million population city, yeah. and there were twenty eight hundred people in our hometown. And everybody said we could have won if we'd had him. And I wanted to scream. Yeah. I've been here the whole time, yeah, man. <laughs> Why didn't you invite us to try out? But I got started when I was 12, and um, it was fantastic. Playing with Guy was great. We beat teams 7 nothing, 8 nothing, 10 nothing, and I would get 7 assists, 8 assists, 10 assists. Because yeah. I, could, I could get control of the puck, and I knew that as soon as I hit the neutral zone, Flower would be flying down the wing, and if I could even come close to putting on his tape, it was a sure goal. So he would have the seven goals, the eight goals, and the ten goals. Before I started playing with him, they didn't even have a team in Thurso, Quebec. So he played across the river at a town called Rockland, Ontario. They beat a team 21 nothing, and he got all of the goals. <laughs> Just an absolute savage. Just yeah. That's oh, unbelievable. He was a beast, and he and, and he did everything that I did in the NHL. I wore number ten. He wore number ten. I won two Stanley Cups. Okay, he won four. I think <laughs> in I played eleven years. Okay, he played twenty years. Now he was brilliant. Yeah, he was just a, and a great guy and a brilliant player. That's and awesome. By the way, on that that little arena, there there was no housing next to the arena, but the little town grew a little bit, so they put in two streets, one on either side of the arena. One is Guy Lafleur Street. The other one is Bill Clement. Oh, that's so cool, man. That's like, the, that's well, listen, kick-ass, everything right? that they gave to Guy, they kind of had to give to me. <laughs> so every summer at a sports banquet, if they gave him a set of golf clubs, they had to give me a set of golf yeah. clubs. So it was great. I just hitched my, I just hitched <laughs> my wagon to his, you know, to his engine and yeah. away we went. That's awesome, man. Uh, you were drafted by the Flyers. 
What was like your initial reaction? Like, when did you know that you were good enough to make the NHL? Um, I guess with a couple of years left at junior, especially my last year, my coach said, you know, if you just quit smoking, you could probably be a first round pick <laughs> into the NHL. I was, uh, I kind of lived on the edge and uh, half, half of every team smoked in junior teams or NHL teams. Yeah. I mean, you know, way different. smoking was, was that? It's way different now, huh? Oh, way different. The only players <laughs> that smoke now are Russian players. Yeah. <laughs> mostly. And, and that's true. But I, I guess I knew I was good enough to, to at least have a shot at it uh, in my last year of junior. And the draft was in Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. It wasn't televised. It was nothing like it is today. There were no Europeans in the game, hardly any Americans. Um, I mean, the odd American here and there. So there weren't that many players that were actually in the draft pool. And I remember being at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, our owner from the Ottawa 67s took four of us down there. We were all big guys. Myself, Terry Murray, Peter LaFramboise, who played in the NHL for a number of years, and a guy named Connie Forey, who also played in the NHL. The four of us ended up making it. But he thought when the GMs and the coaches saw how big we were, because I was 6'1 and weighed about 190, and the other guys were at least as big as me, um, that we'd get drafted. And I can honestly tell you, that it was one of the worst days of my life and one of the best days of my life. The drama of sitting there not knowing if you're going to be selected. And if you are selected, when you're going to be selected. And if you are selected, by whom will you be selected? So it's like, holy geez, all of these things are flashing through your head. There were only 14 teams that year. That was the year that Buffalo and Vancouver came into the league, 1970. So there were 14 first-round picks. The Flyers had traded away their first round pick, so they didn't have one. So here we go in the second round. And it got to the 15th, it got to the fourth pick in the second round. Philadelphia Flyers select, and my name was pronounced Clement then. They select from the Ottawa 67s, Bill Clement. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and and my, your, my first thought was, who the hell do they have at center? <laughs> I didn't follow all of the teams in the NHL, and there weren't many Flyers games on in Canada. Yeah. And I looked at their lineup of centers, and I thought, this is good. Yeah. They don't have, like, two all-star centers. Um, and, and away I went from there. Uh, the mispronunciation of my name happened. Uh, and we'll get to that in a minute if you want, because yeah. it, it's pretty interesting. It has to do with my television career. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so what happened there? Well, when I... When I retired from the sport, uh, and I was playing for the Calgary Flames, it was 1982, and I didn't have anything really set up or planned, so I acquired the rights for a Canadian restaurant franchise that I'd gotten to know pretty well, because I raised money for these other two friends that were acquiring the rights for the Grandma Lee's Bakery in Delhi. Uh, they acquired the rights for four states, Utah, uh, Nevada, Colorado, and I didn't want to raise money. I didn't want to ask people for money for these two guys that I knew well. But I didn't want to ask for any money unless I knew something about the product, something about its um, chances for success. So I actually went and worked in, a, in one of the stores for a couple of days. And I really liked what I saw. Mm-hmm. So when I retired, I acquired the rights for Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama. And the plan was to attack the world, build a pilot store in Atlanta, open it up, uh, be wildly successful, and sell franchises in Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama. And... A year and a half after I opened up the pilot store, it failed. Mm -hmm. And I plunged face first into corporate bankruptcy and personal bankruptcy. Um, 
my marriage fell apart. I lost my home. I was broke. I was scared. I was depressed. Uh, to make matters worse, I had no job, no career, no training, and I didn't have a college degree. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, what can I do? Yeah. And I always wanted to, I, I always saw commercial actors and other actors, and I thought, I think I could do that. So I enrolled in every class I could get my hands on at the Alliance Theater School in Atlanta and got pretty good at it pretty quickly. Um, met my, my wife that I've been together with for 33 years now. We were paired up to read as husband and wife on an audition. And, That's uh, pretty we cool. We moved to New York and we were doing really well in New York. I mean, my, my first year of full-time acting, I made $70,000. My second year, I made $100,000. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, going, I'm doing okay with this. Yeah. And I really wanted to be a serious actor mm -hmm. and land more significant roles. So when ESPN called one day and said, I was living in a little apartment with my fiance in Queens, New York, and ESPN said, would you like to audition for a job as color analyst? And to be honest, the idea of having to audition for my lunch and my rent and our lunch and our rent every week, it's hard. Yeah. Being an actor is hard. Yeah. Um, unless you end up with a TV series that runs for 10 years, but there are one in 10,000. Yeah. So I said to ESPN, sure, I'd like to, I'd like to try out. So I got, and I said, what's the audition consist of? And the guy says, well, it's a live game on the air. I went, what? Yeah. And right. Said, yeah. Live game on the air. So I got a game in Chicago, Minnesota North stars and the Chicago Blackhawks at Chicago stadium. And it was great. Cause that was the old Norris division in the NHL. We used to call it the Chuck Norris division because they fought all the time. It was yeah. Detroit and Chicago and St. Louis and Minnesota. And the game was good. And I ended up winning the audition. But I still wanted to be a serious actor. And I didn't know how long the broadcasting thing would last. So I did not want to be recognized as a sportscaster going into a serious audition. Yeah. So I thought, maybe I can, maybe I can wear a beard. Like <laughs> the beard being... How about we call me Bill Clement on the air instead of Bill Clement, which my whole family still uses as a pronunciation. And, and they said, sure, whatever you want. So I became Bill Clement, which is a mispronunciation on my family name. And the broadcast thing kept growing and growing and growing. And as it grew, the acting thing kind of yeah. took a back seat. And there I was stuck with a mispronunciation of my family name. No way. I never would have yeah. known that. Well, it was my, it was, it, it was because of me. But it, it was for a reason that seemed to make sense at the time. And none of them in my family resented it. So yeah. it's all good. That That's awesome, man. I had no idea. Also really funny how, like, you met your wife acting as husband and wife. Right. Like, that's unbelievable. <laughs> like, those, yeah, are, like that's something you see art. in the movie. It was great. I mean, it was fantastic. The casting director in Atlanta, because we were both acting in Atlanta. And Atlanta and Chicago are the, are the two top secondary markets for actors and projects uh, they're the two best secondary markets to New York and LA. So it was a good place for me to cut my teeth. And when we got ready to move to New York, I didn't assume we were good enough. I went to the agents that we had in Atlanta mm -hmm. and I asked them, Are, am I good enough to compete in New York? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you think sissy, my wife is good enough to compete in New York? And they said, Oh yeah. We, we cut all avenues of retreat. I loaded up a big U-Haul truck, got a little, a little two-bedroom apartment in Queens that didn't even have a thermostat. The thermostat was downstairs in another apartment, and it was vacant. And the landlord wouldn't let us adjust the thermostat. So in November, it got really cold. Yeah. And here we are, shivering. We're wearing like our <laughs> coats around in our apartment, and the landlord still wouldn't let us go in 
to turn up the air, the uh, turn up the heat. Um, but I left no avenues of retreat. And if, if anybody said, what was one of the keys to you really pushing forward after your bankruptcy? Because I, I was still in the middle of a three-year bankruptcy program where I had to make payments to yep. a bankruptcy trustee every month. And I knew one thing because I had read the book, Think and Grow Rich, and it became my Bible. A, a guy that's a great friend, I talked to him just the other day. He lost more money in my restaurant venture than anybody. And he was more concerned with me and my emotional situation than he was his money. Mm -hmm. He was worried about me. He came and said, I want you to read Think and Grow Rich, and I really want you to read it closely. And I read it and reread it. One of the lessons of success in Think and Grow Rich that was written in the 30s, studying all the most successful people in, in the world, one of the keys was burning your ships when you go ashore. All you have to do is ask the Spaniards and the Greeks about that. They send their men ashore to do battle and they burn the ships. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. your options were limited at that yeah, point. Yeah, you only have one right? thing. Yeah. And losing the battle on land was not one of the options. So I didn't we I let the apartment go. I had no furniture. I had no no nothing in Atlanta. I listened to so many actors come back from New York after trying it for three weeks or six weeks or three months, say, eh, yeah, nah, nah. You know, they made kind of excuses, but I realized that they had left themselves an avenue of retreat. We didn't. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we made it. We had to move forward. We didn't have any agents lined up or any work lined up. It's the only thing you could we do. We found a way to get it done. Yeah, it's the only thing that you could do if you if you burn all the other ships. What, I mean, what else do you have going on? So uh, that's cool. Um, we're going to rewind a little bit. We're going to go back to the Flyers. So you played with Bobby Clark, Bernie Perron, and Dave Schultz. I mean, can you can you tell us a little bit about each of those players? Because every single person I just listed are just like unbelievable hockey players. Yeah, they're both... They're all still close friends. Yeah. They were all so different than what they brought to the team. Bobby Clark hated losing, I think, more than anybody that I ever met. Still, yeah. I haven't met anybody like him. He was an incredible leader. He was willing, even at the age of 23 and 24, to have the tough conversations with his teammates. Mm -hmm. And he had some of them with me. I mean, if he didn't think that you were giving the team everything that you could, he's the guy that talked to you. Not not our coach, not Freddie Shiro. And Bobby was a brilliant player on the ice, limited skating ability, unlimited strength and, and IQ on the ice. So he put up big numbers. He won two Hart trophies as a league MVP um, and was... To me, and I, I never played with all of the other captains. I never played pro football, baseball, but I will stack Bobby Clark as a leader. I'll stack him up against anybody that's ever played any sport. No way. And it was that valuable to our team. Bernie Perron, our goaltender, Hall of Famer, yeah. two-time Vesna winner, two-time Conn Smythe playoff MVP winner. Uh, there was nobody like Bernie, but he learned... He got. He was fantastic always, but he went to Toronto. The Flyers traded him to Toronto, and he got to play with Jacques Plante, his childhood idol and yeah. his hero. And Jacques Plante really explained the game to Bernie mm -hmm. and taught him things about goaltending and angles and and situations that he never even dreamed existed. And when by the time Bernie came back to the Flyers, he was. Way better. Yeah, just a whole other player. Else in the game. Yeah. Way better. Like there was Bernie and everybody else. For Schultze, I turned pro with Schultze. We played a year in the minors with the Quebec Aces in the American League. Davey never had a fight in junior. 
Really? Once. Never. Went to the Eastern League. He came out of junior the year before me. Didn't make pros, but he made the sort of the, the Eastern League, which is a stepping stone mm-hmm. to, to the American League. And the Eastern League was so damn violent. <laughs> I swore when I turned pro and went to my first camp, if the Flyers sent me to the Eastern League, I was going to check out. No way. And it, it was too <laughs> tough for me. But Schultz was the baddest animal in the hockey jungle for at least five years. That's unreal. And the only time I ever saw him lose a couple of fights was before they brought in the hair-pulling rule. Yeah. And Gary Howitt from the New York Islanders and Clark Gillies from the Islanders both grabbed Schultz by the hair and beat the snot out of him. Uh, other than that, I saw Dave Schultz knock people out when he couldn't even see them. And I've asked Dave this many times. I have a local radio show, so Schultz comes on with yeah. me. So I said, tell me about your fighting style. And he would say, well, it was pretty simple. He said, I had to have my balance. So I needed a grip on the other guy, yeah. right? And he said, I always punch with my right hand. So I, I, would, I would eat a few punches while I was getting the grip that I wanted. And he said, I always wanted to grip the guy right here on his jersey or his shoulder pads, yeah. right here beside his cheek. And he said, no matter what happened after that, I knew that when I punched, as long as I came real close to where my hand was, I was going to hit him in the face. Okay. And that's yeah. how he fought. And he, he was the baddest animal in the jungle. At the same time, there were guys that were psycho on every team. Yeah. Scared me to death and scared a lot of other players in the NHL to death. Guys like Bob Gassoff and Steve Durbano. And I said to Schultz one night, we're having a few beers and we had a couple too many. And I said, <laughs> hey, are you ever scared when you're on the ice? And he looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> like, this isn't typical subject matter, yeah. right? For macho guys playing for the Broad Street Bullies yeah. to discuss. And he said, yeah. I said, really? He said, yeah, I am. And he said, Think how scared I am. i got to fight the toughest guys yeah. on the other team. And he told me that he wouldn't look at the schedule because he'd be afraid that he would see when we were going to play the Boston Bruins. And Terry O'Reilly. Oh, was yeah, tough. Tad, tough as Tasmanian nails. devil. And Taz threw with his left hand. And Schultz threw with his right hand. And they both just grabbed on. But there was no protection. They yeah. just threw haymakers at one another. And, and Dave Schultz said to me, he said, you know, I won't, I won't sleep until after the game. So if I see them on the schedule, I could go a week with hardly any oh, sleep before man. the game. And he said, on more than one occasion, I've toyed with the idea of calling Terry O'Reilly up and saying, hey, Terry, it's Dave Schultz. we got to stop this shit. One of us is really going to get hurt. <laughs> that, and, now, and Dave was the best. He stood up for his teammates. And when there was a, if any team called up a tough guy from the minors yeah. for, against us, Fred Shiro knew to put Dave Schultz out there against him, put yeah. the hammer out there against him, and Schultz would go right up to him and challenge him. As, because he knew. He might as well have said to the guy, I know why you're here. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Right? Was he was he like that off the ice? Was he was he like just that? No? Never thrown a punch or had a fight in his really? life off the ice. That's I think I had more fights off the ice than I did on the ice. Dave Schultz had, I don't know, how many thousands... I think he spent the equivalent of, of eight total days in the penalty box, if you look at all his penalty minutes. But he never he's never had a fight off the ice in his life. That's incredible. And and, yeah. and you, you talked about how great of a leader Bobby Clark was, and then you, then you have a guy like Dave Schultz that's going to stick up for the boys like whenever. I mean, that, that's that's how you build teams. That's how you, that's how you build championship-type teams, I would think, right? Especially but, like... Yeah, but everybody else was in play, too. Yeah. In other words, the, the toughest part about playing our team was that... We, we all stuck together. Mm-hmm. Oh, you touch my brother, you touch me. Yeah. 
kind of thing. Or yeah. you, you hurt my brother, you're hurting me. So we, we would all kind of, you know, band together. The greatest line, and it was really intimidating to play against us. And I wasn't one of the tough guys, but Moose DuPont was. Eddie Van Imp was ruthless with his stick. So was Clarky. Uh, Bob Kelly, Don Selesky. We had a lineup. And, and the funniest thing I ever heard about what it was like to be a player on a visiting team coming in was uh, told to me by my great friend Brian Engblom, who I worked with for a couple of years at the Versus Network, was an all-star defenseman with the Canadians and played for the Washington Caps. And Brian said, yeah, he said, it was a pretty tough building. He said, when I played in Montreal, the bus would pull down underneath the, the spectrum. The big doors would open up so the bus could pull right in at ice level. And he said, we knew we were in trouble when the bus driver turned off the bus and it was still shaking. <laughs> Jesus, man. God, those days must have been unbelievable. Uh, you were traded to the Capitals uh, for Mel Bridgman, who ended up being the first overall draft pick, and you were also traded to the Flames. I guess I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Like, when, you, when you're traded playing professional sports, like, what is that like? That's got to just be, like, a giant kick to, like, the stomach, right? Like, that had to have been terrible, especially after making all those memories with the Flyers, and it's like, oh, now I got to go. Uh, yeah, it, it was – it was hard. Yeah. The trade from Washington, Philadelphia to Washington, because I was traded 10 days after the season ended. Mm-hmm. And I was traded 10 days after the season ended, after we won our second Stanley Cup, because the draft was 11 days after we won the Cup. Mm-hmm. And the Flyers wanted to pick number one overall. So they sent me and their number one pick, which was, I think, 18th overall, for the number one overall pick yeah. uh, in the draft. And they drafted Mel Bridgman. Um, what was really difficult about it is that I went from the best team in the world to the worst team in the world. Yeah. And they made me captain. The management made me captain in Washington. And it was an expansion team the year before. So I got traded Washington's second year in existence. And believe me, back then, an expansion team was comprised of guys that were unwanted or leftovers mm-hmm. in other organizations. So you didn't have any Bobby Clarks. Yeah. You didn't have any Dave Schultzes. You didn't have any Bernie Perrants. And it, it was really hard because we were awful. Uh, I lasted 52 games with Washington, mm-hmm. uh, 52 of the longest games of my career. <laughs> and when I was traded to Atlanta partway through that first season in Washington, the night before I was traded, we had just played our 21st consecutive game without a win. That is a long freaking time. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I, I remember being upset when I was traded from Philly to Washington. I was on my way up to Ottawa where my girlfriend lived and I was going to spend the summer there and I was staying at my girlfriend's aunt in Syracuse. And I remember sleeping in their family room they had a pull-out couch and I remember it was about 7, 7.30 in the morning that my wife's aunt came in and sort of knocked on the door and stuck her head in the door and said, uh, there's a man named Keith Allen on the phone that would like to talk to you. Keith Allen was the Flyers' general manager. Yeah. And I knew this wasn't going to be good. Yeah, you knew it like so right I away. Sat, I sat up in bed. I remember sitting up and going, uh-oh, out loud. <laughs> I went, uh-oh. Yeah. And I took the phone, and he was really a classy guy. And, and, and you know, I didn't find this out until a couple of weeks ago, talking to one of the great sports writers ever, a man named Jay Greenberg. Google him. He's, he's okay. so well-known. Jay said, you know, did you know that you'd been traded before the Game 6 when you guys won the Cup? I said, no. 
I read an article in the Buffalo newspaper that said Flyers are going to make a deal with Washington, and it was going to be a package or some of or one of either Terry Crisp, Horst Kinderchuk, Bob Kelly, Don Selesky, or Bill Clement. It turned out to be me. And Jay said, I saw a document, an actual letter, that was dated a number of days before that. So during the finals, you were traded, but you didn't find out. Nobody told no you way. until just before the amateur draft. I said, well, am I ever glad they didn't tell me? Yeah. First of all, you can't trade any during the finals. Yeah, no you way. So, and, and you know, when I was traded from Washington to Atlanta, I was really pissed off mm. because uh, I hadn't gotten the job done. I was the captain. We were a horrible team. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see at least an uptick yeah. on the team. I wanted to see us turn it around. So Max McNabb, the late Max McNabb, called me into his office after I'd. Uh, and how much time we got here anyway? Whatever you got. Oh yeah, we're good, man. I, I uh, okay. as long as you're good, I'm so, good. This is all so good. So I'm gonna tell you this story. <laughs> we we had a coach in Washington named Milt Schmidt. He was the coach and GM, and a, a, an elderly gentleman uh, just passed away. Gosh. I, hope he's not still alive. I would have be a curse. Uh, he was in his late sixties then. And they fired him at Christmas time and brought in Max McNabb as the GM and Tommy McVee. Mm-hmm. And Tommy McVee was crazy. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he say, and, and after, you know, years later, a writer said to me that Tommy McVee said that I was no use to him down there because all I did was live in the past talking about my flyers days and it really hurt my feelings because I was so conscious. I heard other guys talk about, yeah, well, when I played in, you know, when I played in Boston, when I played in New York, and everybody goes, yeah, 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 we don't yeah. care. We don't care. Like, that's, like, cut the cord. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I knew, that, knew not to do that. So Tommy used to drive us to exhaustion. His, he idolized a, a middle-distance runner from the U.S., from Portland, Oregon, named Steve Prefontaine. Yep. Nike. And... Tommy thought he could drive hockey players like that. And the practices were killer. We got into Minnesota the night before a game. We were supposed to get in there the afternoon of the game, and we were going to practice then. We got in at 8 o'clock at night. He gets us on the ice by 9 o'clock, and we practiced for an hour and a half, doing wind sprints at the end and grinding us into the ground. We got blown out the next night. Yeah. We had nothing. We had no energy. So I played in my, in my first All-Star game representing Washington, in Philadelphia on a Monday night. And I went out with some ex-teammates with the Flyers, had a couple of pops. We had a game in Washington the next night. So I got back home about 3 in the morning, slept in as much as I could. Then we had a morning skate because our, our team, Washington Cats, were playing the Rangers that night. Tommy kicked our butts in the morning skate. So now I'm really running on empty. Yeah. So we play the game. And, I, and my good buddies on the Washington team wanted to go out and find out what the All-Star game was like. And we didn't have a game the next day. So, okay, I went out with them, got to bed one or two in the morning after having a few beers. So the next morning, Tommy just kills us in practice. And after practice, he says, Max wants to see you in his office. So I drive the 37 miles from Tyson's Corner, Virginia, where we practiced, around the Landover, Maryland, where the cap center was. And I go in to sit down across from Max McNabb. And Max is eating a, Max has got a hamburger on the go. So he's chewing his hamburger and he said, yeah, good game last night. I said, you know what? We're going to turn the corner, Max. We were so close and we got that, they got that late goal. And he says, yeah, well, we made a deal and it's a good one for you. Atlanta, Cliff Fletcher wants to talk to you. 
and he presses a button and hands me the phone and keeps eating his hamburger. Right? And I go, really? Yeah. Really? I'm sorry to inconvenience your lunch. You just really impacted my life and you're going to yeah. bother finishing your hamburger sitting here right in front of me? Oh, my so God. I, as soon as I took the phone, I said to myself, if there's a game tonight and they want me to be there to play and I, I can't, like I got nothing. Yeah. Cliff Fletcher said, I've been trying to make this deal for two years. The Flyers wouldn't deal you to us because we were in the same division at the time. And he said, we're short of players. We traded a first-round pick and Jerry Meehan and Sean Lemieux to Washington to get you. So our roster's short. And the game's in Philly tonight. You've got to come to Philly tonight. I get back in the car. You know, it's only like a three-hour drive. But, I mean, went home and told my, my first wife, said, you won't believe this. i got to play tonight again. And I went and played, and we got killed. So in in uh, in Philadelphia, but I was the only player ever in the history of the NHL to play three games on three consecutive nights for three different teams: no. <laughs> All Star Team, Washington Capitals, and then playing for the Atlanta Flames against Philadelphia. But when Max McNabb, when I hung up the phone from Cliff Fletcher, and I'm in shock again, Max said to me, "You got a couple of minutes to give Abe Poland. Abe Poland owned the Washington Bullets." And the and the Washington Capitals and a very wealthy sports owner. I don't think I'd ever met him. Yeah. And I this was January and the season started in September. So I remember sarcastically saying to Max, "Yeah, I guess I can give him two minutes of my time. That's about as much of his time as he's given me." Yeah. And we went to Abe Poland's office, and he was such a wonderful, gracious man. He thanked me for my, my service with the team. He thanked me for my effort. And I left there with a great respect for a man that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. And I actually felt bad that I had been sarcastic to Max McNabb about Abe Poland because he was a great man. Yeah. Uh, but And I was angry about being traded. Punchline is Atlanta had a decent team, mm -hmm. and we won our share. Yeah. And I was a prominent player on that team. And the weather was great. The cost of living was good in Atlanta. The people were friendly. And I, I adjusted very quickly after that deal. What was the, what was the hockey market like there? Like, were there tons of people that went to the games? Because Atlanta, I mean, they had the Thrashers there for a bit. That's what I can remember. But is yeah, that well, like a good it, hockey it, market? People think that hockey failed there twice. It only failed there once. The Thrashers failed there. Um, our Atlanta Flames team, we couldn't win in the playoffs. Couldn't even win a game, but we made the playoffs every year. Mm -hmm. And our owner, Tom Cousins was a real estate developer and he saw a chance and he, he had some real estate development difficulties and he, he paid uh, $6 million for the team. He ended up selling it for ten uh, to an interest in Calgary and as a result no, you're not trading me again. You can't. <laughs> I refuse to be traded again. Uh, uh, he sold the team to an interest in Calgary, Alberta and what people, people think hockey failed. We averaged over 10,000 people a game. Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. I mean, yeah. We averaged enough to stay there, but our owner saw an opportunity to to, to turn a profit on an investment. I get that. Yeah. You know, that's cool. It's a business, right? Yeah. Yeah. People were rabid. Hockey fans anywhere, once they once they sink their teeth into the sport, they're loyal. Yeah. And rabid. Yeah. It's super passionate. So I, I think we kind of already got into how you became, you know, calling games. I guess, like, talk about your relationship with Gary Thorne. Like, when did when did you know that you two like had something special calling games? Uh, pretty quick. Yeah. After you know, I'd worked with Doc Emmerich for seven years, 
And then I got to work with Gary, and Gary is so what, what, what I learned from Gary more than anything. Two things. Number one, something good is going to come out of your mouth if you're just patient. Mm -hmm. Don't panic. Mm -hmm. He was the coolest guy under pressure. Um, and be spontaneous. Gary and I never talked through our game or anything before the before it started. Our, our styles of humor were spontaneous. Uh, we knew how to build points together. He was a, he was very quick on his feet. So as a result, it was he was really easy to work with. Did it? Did really it? Easy. So was Doc. Doc, and you know what? All of the best play. I've worked with thirty nine different play by play guys. My first five games on ESPN, I worked with five different play by play guys. No way. And Gary Thorne was not one of them. Yeah. Uh, so I've worked with 39 play-by-play -play guys, so I I had to be pretty quick on my feet. Everybody has a different style. You need to jump in, you know, when there's yeah. a hole or an opening. and You don't want to step all over them. You have to kind of feel your way along, you know, mm -hmm. in, during the first period. Uh, but the thing that the best play-by-play -play guys had in common, two things. They worked really hard. Mm -hmm. And number two, they were all really, really smart, mm -hmm. really high IQs. And you combine those two things with, uh, you know, with a passion for the sport, and man, it really works. Now, here's here's a question. I, I sent you some questions before just so you can be prepared. As a play-by-play, -play, as like a, as an analyst, as a broadcaster, what are your three most memorable games that you called and why? I, You know, I didn't have a chance to go through all of them because I've had, I don't know, Two thousand, yeah, games. I guess. I mean, roughly. But number one, and there, but the, there were a lot of memorable Flyers games. One of them was a series in the late eighties, in Game Six in the Spectrum, when JJ Daniel scored in overtime to send the, the, the Stanley Cup Final back to Edmonton for Game Seven. That was a series Ron Hextall won the Conn Smythe Trophy as an MVP uh, in a losing cause as the Flyers goalie. Yeah, but the. The most meaningful game and the most electric game and the weirdest game because at times 18,000 people went silent in the building was game seven of the New York Rangers ending of their of their 50-year curse without yeah. the Stanley Cup. 1994, game yeah. seven against the Vancouver Canucks, a 4-3 to three victory. And the people in the stands that had lived decades for this, some of them were in the last decade of their lives, yeah. some of them might have first decade of their lives and their parents and grandparents had told them about the last time the Rangers had won a Stanley Cup. That was so, so dramatic yeah. and, and, and so meaningful. Like the game has to have meaning. The, the second one was game seven in 1987. That It was uh, this, that same year as the Flyers game that J.J. Uh, Daniels scored in. It was game seven in the Patrick division between in the playoffs, not the finals, but between the New York Islanders and the Washington Capitals. Mm -hmm. And it went to game seven, and it went on and on and on. Four overtime periods in game seven. In your overtime. <laughs> in overtime. And Doc Emmerich and I got punchy. I mean, we didn't have any programming for intermissions. There were no canned features. And I, and Doc started leading me to all of these impressions that I did at the time. I was a class clown in my team, in my yeah. school, wherever I was. And then the next intermission... Doc said, if we get another intermission, he's going to take off his shirt. So we come back. I got my shirt off. I had a little t-shirt under it, but I took my tie. And I, it's still on YouTube. I tied my tie around my head, kind of like Cochise, like I was an Indian chief. And the big red telephone rang in the truck, and it was the bosses at ESPN saying, 
tell him to put his freaking clothes back on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Pat Lafontaine scored on Bob Mason, who was the goalie for Washington. Kelly Rooney was the goalie for the Islanders, and Washington could have won that game twenty-five times, and they didn't because of Kelly Rooney in mm-hmm. goal. And they finally won it, and it was. Uh, we got out of there like at one thirty in the morning. Yeah. It was fantastic. And the one, the, one of the games that never even ended up being a complete game was so memorable. It was one of the two years, I think it was 1990, when the Bruins met uh, the Oilers. It, it might have been 88. Um, but in the middle of the game, the lights went out in Boston Garden. And they never came back on. And a huge electrical panel had exploded in their in their utility room, and they weren't going to get the lights back on, so they just shut the game down. That was it. That, I remember that, that, I was on ESPN. I remember it because, or I might have been doing Sports Channel America, but my wife was at the game. She, I said, "Come to the game. We'll go up. We'll stay in Boston overnight. We'll go out for a nice dinner after the game." It never happened. I mean, we got on a plane, went back to Edmonton, and had to play the next game in Edmonton, and they didn't. They didn't award a winning team. The lights just didn't turn back on. Just oh, lights yeah. are off. We're gonna we're gonna go home now. Yeah, that's it. Sorry, guys, game's canceled. What? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And the re- the reason why I asked this, uh, Paul Korea just they just the Ducks just recently uh, retired his jersey, and the right. other day I was I was watching that game where Scott Stevens buried him, and then he came back out, and you know he scored in the playoffs, and you were on that call. And I, it was either you or JD said that you got goosebumps. Was that like one of the, one of the coolest moments ever? Seeing that guy who who you thought was just done come back out and just put put the team on his back goal, not a big deal. Like that that had to have been unbelievable to see. Paul was great, and Paul took so much abuse uh, on the ice. Chris Chelios hated him uh, and tormented him and tried to intimidate him all the time. And Gary Souter, who played was a D partner for Chelly in Chicago cross-checked Paul across the face um, once, and that was such a gruesome thing to, to watch. But in the finals in 2000, and it was 2003 mm-hmm. that, that you're talking about, uh, Scott Stevens caught his head down in the neutral zone, yep. the, way, only, the way only Scott Stevens could. Mm-hmm. And it was like it was yesterday because I saw the hit and I went, oh, my God, and he's out, and he's... Yeah. He's out cold, mm-hmm. right, lying in the ice. So I'm watching. We have a camera on him. And I remember seeing something, and I remember said, we're, we're in tape, right? Like, we've got that recorded. And our producer said, yeah. I said, wind it back. Wind it back. Watch this. So he had a, he wore a shield. Yep, the visor, yeah. He was out cold. And all of a sudden, there were two little puffs of, of a fog on his shield. He started breathing again through his nose. Yeah. And he went, like that and it fogged up. I said he just came too, yeah. and we we, had, we we were able to play that back. And what's so interesting, and we didn't know as much then about concussions as we do now, but what's so interesting is you can, and I've learned this from neurologists, you can be knocked out and not suffer a concussion, mm-hmm. which is wacky to me. Yeah, crazy. But that's what happened to Paul Correa. And when he came back, he, he generated you know that that deciding game. Uh, Game seven. I mean, he was gone that, for what, like ten minutes. He wasn't even gone that long. Like he came. Right. It was crazy. Yeah. And then he comes and, and in here, and he scores. Like now, there's a there's a protocol where you have to go in and they ask you all kinds of questions and they yeah. give you memory tests and everything to see where you are. And back then, it amounted to the player saying, "I'm ready." Yeah. 
That's no, put me back in. I'm yeah, ready to go. Different sport than than it is yeah. now. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I guess those were our questions. Uh, Bill, thanks for coming on, man. Like this, this was awesome. You asked me, are, are we good on time? Like I feel like I just want to talk to you about hockey all day. Like if we could yeah. do that, like we totally could. Um, let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, we'll have to get you on at the at the end of the year or something like that when playoffs are coming or yes, something sir. along those lines. But Bill, thank you, and uh, good chance. You have a good one, man. Okay, brother. See ya. See ya. I've seen the Joshua Tree Got down on my knees Through the virgin mother of prayer I walked last barefooted Strolled across the devil's high cold I tried everything, I swear But hey, hey, what can I say?